0: Welcome to Mouthwash, TBD Conferences podcast with me, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference and founder of Emerging Technology Advisory, Hereforth. My guests today are Kim Scott and Tria Bryan, co-founders of Just Work LLC, spawned from the title of Kim's new book, Just Work, Get Shit Done, Fast and Fair. The pair help corporations create productive organisations where respect and collaboration combine to produce workplaces where everyone can just do their best work. Both impressive women on their own. Together, they are forging interesting change in the largest companies you can think of. Kim is a New York Times best-selling author who taught the big tech companies how to sell and talk to each other. And Tria has a mind boggling career to date, having worked at Twitter, Wall Street and serving in the Air Force as well as the Department of Defence. The pair and I had an amazing chat about the workplace bias that goes on in the world, pressures, and the new book, of course, Just Work, Get Shit Done, Fast and Fair. Also, the new bit hybrid workplace experiment that's looming large for a large portion of us. Enjoy the show. Tim Scott was in Silicon Valley before she wrote her New York Times best-selling book Radical Candor the term for the sweet spot between managers who are both egregiously aggressive on the one side and ruinously empathetic on the other the book is a step-by-step guide to getting what you want by saying what you mean before being an author Kim worked for many many different things including the diamond mine but the majority of her work was done with big tech companies like Apple and Google and about how to sell and talk to each other she is a master of communication and wants to make bad bosses a thing of the past with Tria who is co-founder and CEO Just Work LLC. Tria Bryant is a strategic executive leader with distinctive tech Wall Street and military experience spanning over 15 years. Tria um, has previously held leadership roles at Twitter so she knows the space well. Goldman Sachs and proudly served as a combat veteran in the United States Air Force as a captain leading engineering teams while spearheading diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives for the Air Force Academy, Air Force and Department of Defense. Trier advises leading companies like Equinox, Airbnb, SoundCloud, Alta, Rockefeller Foundation and others on their talent and DEI strategies. I don't think there are two better people that we could have talking about this today. So from uh, microaggressions to outright harassment, have seen it all and just through their work with Just Work LLC they are reshaping the future of work and the way bias is handled. Kim Trier, welcome to the show. I'm honored you've made the time to talk to me about a new book and a lot of other things. How the week shape up for you both?
1: Thank you so much Paul. So far so good. It's been a good week. Yeah thanks Paul. Thanks for having
2: us. We're excited to be here.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Well, this should be fun. Mouthwash isn't just me chatting with Kim and Tria, though. Um, I want to hear your questions. Use the hashtag MouthwashShow, and I'll do my best to get them in. Who knows? They might even go through them at the rest, uh, at the end. And, uh, you know, they're, they're good people. They'll do that. Uh, we don't mess about here at Mouthwash. Okay, let's start with, what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning, both of you?
1: I thought I was excited to be on your show, Paul. Ah,
0: <laughs> I knew you'd say that. <laughs> Tria,
2: a more answer, please. <laughs> oh, well, to be honest with you, I am actually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Louisiana right now, for my brother's graduation for his masters from LSU. And so I woke up thinking about being in uh, Louisiana with this amazing food this morning and what my uh, meals were going to look like today because the meal, the food has just been fantastic
0: oh wow god thinking back to graduating and that sort of stuff it's very different in the u.s than it is to the uk but very very well not not many years ago but you know enough there you go um right right not too many paul not too many yeah exactly
1: not too
2: many (laughs)
0: last
2: 12 Paul. i appreciate you asking last 12 months for me i mean i think for everyone it's just been uh pretty difficult right i've been challenging um trying to keep a positive attitude but there's a lot going on in the world and like for me particularly as a woman i identify as a black woman it's hard it has been hard professionally and personally with everything going on in the world
0: there's certainly been a lot going on um you
1: kim you know the last 12 months also i i am exhausted I am just really exhausted uh, and, and in ways I don't fully understand why I'm so tired, but I think there's been an enormous cognitive load, and uh, uh you know and and I, I finished a book on workplace injustice in the last year and uh, and launched it, and that also. Uh, it, the world kept changing around me. I thought, oh my gosh, I'll, I, 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 there are so many things that I haven't covered that I should have covered in this book. So it's been a it's been a year.
0: It's been a year, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, g- give me a quick um, how you guys first met because um, it's been a while. Um, and <laughs> when did you know that you wanted to run a business together?
2: Yeah. So Kim finished the book last year. Um, I was lucky enough to get an early copy of it. And I read the book. Had I think the book is absolutely powerful. And um, you know, Kim and I were just discussing about how to look. Kim always says, "Unfortunately, no one changes their behavior just by reading a book," which is absolutely true. If <laughs> we all just want to acknowledge it, right? And so I just thought. But you should still fortune. read the book. But you should still read the book because <laughs> <for the> it's important. <laughs> but yeah, um, how book. do we take the framework? And you know, get it into as many organizations and to leaders as possible, right? To really start tackling this problem and getting from talking about it to actually implementing actions and doing the
1: work. And I think when, as I was as I was sort of winding up the book, I was thinking, you know, I am a person. I've had a uh, let's say I've had a lot of root canals in the course of my career. But I realized I really needed to partner with a dentist <laughs> as the as the patient. Uh, you know, I, I needed to work with someone who really knew how to solve these problems. And Trier, as a chief people officer, a person who started a DEI consulting firm, someone who had leadership roles across. the the Air Force, Goldman Sachs, Twitter, uh, really has helped me stay real about working with companies and helping them put these ideas into practice. So I feel very lucky to be her co-founder.
0: Yeah. But we talk about the book, and also I want to talk about the company a bit more. Let's talk about the world of work, where we are at the moment. And, you know, it's, it's changing because of the pandemic and that sort of stuff. Do you think it's uh, fair to say that the pandemic's been a benefit to businesses in so much that it's given them a lens to see how their companies really work when stressed?
1: No. <laughs> I, 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 do, I wish it were that way. And I'm an optimist. Like I, I was hoping that was how it would it would play out but there study after study shows that that the pandemic uh, we just we keep seeing leaders make these terrible mistakes in response awful but especially mistakes. yeah especially <laughs> recently and uh, base camping being yeah, and there, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post t- this morning that was just awful. Um, so leaders are not noticing the things that seem to me, from where I sit, to be a little bit that, that ought to be uh, obvious. And I think there's there, there are also, Project Include launched a study recently about what has happened to underrepresented folks throughout the pandemic. And it's been really, really a rough year on people.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, Paul, it's interesting because, um, look, I think strong leaders know how you have to learn how to navigate through crisis and a pandemic is a crisis. Um, But I think that for leaders that are strong and can use this as a learning opportunity, I think that there are some positives that, organizations have seen. Um, We've seen some leaders that are like, hey, maybe employees don't need to be located in our offices physically, um, you know, co-located, and we can be productive um, through, you know, remote work. Hey, Maybe we really need to focus a little bit more on our caregivers and parents. And I think this really has highlighted some groups that haven't really given the been given the attention that they really need to do their best work. and I think that there we've seen a lot of great. I've seen some organizations that have really stepped up to support those um, those employees within their organization. And I think the other, you know, positive that I've seen where people, again, have tried to take some type of positive learning moments from this uh, crisis is listening to their employees. I think that we have seen a lot of organizations that have created new spaces for employees' employees' voices to be heard and really understanding what they need so that they can thrive within their organizations and not just survive.
0: I definitely think that's the case for a lot of people I've, I've, I've heard a big spectrum from doing research um, in a couple of for a couple of projects that I've done recently and some are having their worst year ever like personally and others are having an amazing year but for really different reasons and disparate reasons as well um, it sort of speaks to like how companies are changing and morphing and another big experiment that's coming on is the hybrid working model um, where do you think that's going to end up do you think the rich are just going to get richer or is it going to make work more bearable or is it the beginning of star trek utopia
1: it'll it'll be really interesting to see i mean I, I i i can't predict the future certainly but it it seems to me that enough people have noticed the benefits of of not going into an office that that there, at least there's enough questions out there now now there are going to be some leaders who uh, I think for some people it's been a, a huge benefit not to have to go. In, I mean, for me, I'm an, I'm an introvert. I like to write. Like it's been wonderful. The many terrible things have happened, but the the quarantine part of this year has been quite nice. Not having to get on airplanes all the time, not traveling all the time, but other people hate it. Other people actually like miss the travel, which I don't. And so figuring out how we're going to accommodate these two different responses to travel to working in person is is going to be really important and i think the leaders who will win are the leaders who understand the benefit of diversity of of, that's right. of creating organizations that where everyone can just work not only the extroverts that's right
0: uh, a beautiful- segue, a beautiful segue. All right, Kim, the book is out now, Uh, Just Work, Get It Done Fast and Fair. Um, I know you don't love questions about what the book's about, but tell us what it covers and why you chose to follow up Radical Candle with
1: it. Sure. So Just Work is about sort of learning to differentiate between bias, prejudice, bullying, and understanding then how when you layer power on top of bias, prejudice, and bullying, you get discrimination, harassment, and physical violations. And it's, it's written not just to describe the problem, but to try to envision. I, I, don't, I don't have the solution to all these problems, but try to envision what are the things that we can do to make this better so that we can all just work. So what are the things we can do as leaders? What are the things we can do as upstanders or observers of these problems? What are the things that we can do when we are harmed by these attitudes and behaviors? And what are the things that we can do when we get some feedback that we have caused harm? How can we respond well? So I think we can all do better. I think, uh, and I think in the end, we all want the same thing. We all wanna just work. We don't want all this nonsense to get in the way of our ability to just work. I, I wrote this book uh, sort of as a result of something, well, there were probably many, many reasons why I wrote this book, but there was a moment when I knew I had to write this book. And it, was, it happened after I was giving a presentation to, uh, to the company and the CEO of that company, it was a tech company here in San Francisco, and the CEO of that company, had been the colleague for a better part of a, a, a decade, uh, one of my colleagues, somebody I really liked and respected, and one of two few black women CEOs in tech. And she pulled me aside after the presentation, and she said, Kim, I really like radical candor. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture that I want. But I got to tell you, it's harder for me to put it into practice than it is for you. And I'm willing to bet it's harder for you than it is for the men who we worked with. And I sort of had three simultaneously revelations at once when she said this. The first was that I had not been the kind of upstander that I wanted to be for her. I had failed to notice the extent to which she always had to be unfailingly pleasant, and as a, as a black woman, she said, if i she explained to me, if I offer even the gentlest criticism to someone, then I get signed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true, and why had I failed to notice? And why had I failed to notice also the toll that it must have taken on her all those years to be always incessantly pleasant? Because believe me, in that period of time, she had a what to be pissed off about. So that was part of the second revelation was that I had been in denial about the kinds of things that happened to me as a woman and in the workplace as well. And last but not least, I, had, I realized I had failed as a leader to create the kinds of environments that would prevent these attitudes and behaviors from allowing everyone to do their best work and to enjoy working together. So that was kind of when I realized I better sit down and write this book.
0: Uh, You you talked about an example that I was going to ask Tria about later, so I'll ask her about it now. Um, Tria, you're a Black CEO, uh, increasing but sadly not common enough um, and still, quote, a a thing. Um, I think it was um, the Radical Candor podcast where I first heard the story that Kim just uh, mentioned there. and uh, the applying radical candor would, would trigger people into applying the angry black woman pejorative stereotype to, to, to um, that CEO. Right. Um, previous episode of Mouthwash, Carol Russell, a black TV writer who is breaking boundaries, doing amazing things, saying TV rooms are changing just not fast enough. Um, how do we lose that stereotype? Is it a school media issue or is there something deeper at play?
2: It's all the above. It, it is all of the above um, and, and they are stereotypes and they're tropes and it takes a toll and it takes a burden. And for me, what's been interesting across my career is how it shows up differently in the military. And I was an officer in the military. So as an officer in the military, I immediately, when I graduated from the Air Force Academy, outranked over 70% of the military. So um, there are so many stories. I, I remember um, I when I deployed in the military, your your rank is on your uniform. And I, but the only uniform that your rank is not on the uniform is your PT gear. And it's the most comfortable uniform. So in deployed locations, I never wore my PT gear because if I did, people would assume that I wasn't an officer and would treat me very differently. Um, so I always made sure that when I was out, I wore a uniform where you had my rank because you don't expect to see a black woman officer in the military or in the Air Force. And so it's interesting how that shows up. Right. I walk into a room. I remember the first time I got some really um, you know, strong feedback that I needed to hear. And I asked the colonel who gave it to me, why had no one ever told me this? And they said, well, Trier, you come off as being, you know, uh, aggressive and people are intimidated by you. And I was just like, okay. And I struggled a lot as a, as a young professional, as a young officer with how do you navigate that? How do you deal with that? When that may not be my persona, that may not be my personality, but that's how I'm perceived. Transition seven years later to wall street. Um, I actually got feedback on the trading floor of Goldman Sachs that I was too aggressive.
1: <laughs> Believe it I didn't or not. Think there was such a thing.
2: Yeah, too aggressive. Um, but again, you know, as a Black woman and, and and like, look, even now to this day, and it's interesting, Kim and I will talk about the bias that I receive and that um, that happens and the prejudice and like emails. Um, I think the most, the most common one more recently is um, Kim and I will be in meetings and discussing, but people will still direct questions to Kim or talk to Kim because you may see this other Black woman and you think that maybe I'm Kim's assistant or EA, but that I'm not the CEO of Just Work and that. Kim so greatly just wants to go and write her next book and really wants me to answer all the questions. Um, But these are things that we have to navigate as black women that, um, you know, that you don't think that we have a seat at the table. You don't think that we're present, but we very much are. And um, it's hard and it's exhausting to always consciously have to think about that and navigate that.
0: Yeah, I, you know, being a white guy and that sort of thing, and I would say middle-aged, tragically, um, I, I... a lot of this book I found hard to read because I was, I've been in that room or I've been that person and that sort of thing. And so it was a really, uh, it, yeah, it was a really emotional read for me because I I can identify when I've been in those situations, go, I should have stood up and said something and that's sort of thing. And that's what I love about the book. Um, Paul, can I just,
2: can I just say real quick, like, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think it's really important for people to hear that because as many conversations as Kim, as I have had, I wish that more people acknowledge that, Hey, this was hard to read because I acknowledge that I was that person who was causing harm, or I was that person who might've exhibited that bias or demonstrated that bias. Um, But now you can reflect, right. And that means that when you know better, you're going to do better. So I appreciate you sharing that. um, And, you know, and, and of the change that you've had in your behavior,
0: which it seems like you have. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on it, you know, and that sort of thing. With, ev- with every meeting, I think there's an opportunity, and that sort of thing. Um, one, we should talk about that, actually, before we jump on. Um, Kim, you mentioned upstanders. Um, tell us a bit more about what that means and what are the norms leaders can create to encourage more upstanders in their organization?
1: Yeah, so one of my favorite examples of an upstander comes from a story that Aileen Lee, who is the founder of Cowboy VC, told me. And she said she walked into a meeting with, with another company with two colleagues who were men. They sat down at this long conference table and and then the other side starts filing. And the first guy comes in and he sits across from the guy to her left. The next guy comes in. They're all men except for Aileen. The next guy comes in, sits across uh, from the guy to his left, and then they file on down the table, leaving Aileen dangling by herself. So kind of a a little bit of unconscious bias just in the seating. And then they start the meeting. And Aileen has the expertise on her firm's side that's going to win them the deal. And so she starts talking, and uh, and the other side starts ask, directing their questions towards the two men, not towards her. And it happened once, it happened twice, it happened a third time. And finally, Aileen's business partner stands up and he says, "I think Aileen and I should switch seats." That's all he. That's all he did. And they did switch seats, and the t- the dynamic totally changed in the room. And so that's an example of, of 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 a man being an upstander. And there were two reasons why he was an upstander. One was because he cared about Aileen, and he didn't like seeing her be ignored. Not because, you know, and he wanted to intervene because it was easier for him. Not because Aileen is a, a shy, retiring person. She's not. Uh, not because she needed him. She was, she was certainly is no damsel in distress. But because he didn't like seeing her being treated. So he's standing up to the bias, not for Aileen. But the second reason, and this is really crucial, that he did it, is that he wanted to win the deal. And he knew that he needed Aileen's expertise if, if they were going to win the deal. And so so that's the sort of the practical side of just work, as well as the sort of, you know, emotional, behavioral side of just work. So so that's an example of an up. Now, this I had to kind of search for a story about somebody standing up successfully to to bias because it happens all too rarely. So what are the things that leaders can do? to help it happen more often. This is what we Trier and I call bias interrupters. And there's two parts to to teaching your team to interrupt bias in meetings. The first is to come up with a shared vocabulary whereby everyone chooses the same phrase or word that they're gonna use to interrupt bias. So Trier and I use a purple flag. So if Trier says purple flag, I know I've just said something that's biased. And my editor and I use the word, yo. So if I, if Tim said yo, I knew that I had just said or written something biased. Other teams we've worked with have used bias alert. Some teams like to use some of Daniel Kahneman's language. Uh, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter what words you choose. It does matter. But what is important is that you choose the words. Don't dictate as the leader the words that your team is going to use because you want to help them find words that they will use it. They'll be comfortable using. So that's part one is shared vocabulary. Part two is teaching the people whose bias has been interrupted the how to respond because when one's bias has been has been pointed out to one to me anyway i feel ashamed and when i feel ashamed i rarely respond at my best i'm often defensive and so what you want to do as the leader is to teach people how to respond and there's basically two responses if the person gets why what they said was biased then they say, "I'm sorry. I'll try not to do it again." If they don't get it, which is also okay, uh, we're, we're, this, the whole point of this is education. We want to bring a growth mindset to this. But if they don't get it, then they need to say, "I don't get it. Can you explain to me after the meeting?" And the after the meeting part, or if it's a Zoom meeting, you can drop a link in into the Zoom chat. But the point is not to spend too long because we should be interrupting bias two or three times in every meeting. And if we spend too much time explaining the bias, then then we won't, as the book says, get shit done. So so that's that's an idea for how how to help create more upstanders in your organization.
0: No, I really like the quote by um, Audrey Lord: um, "Your silence will not protect you," um, and. Uh... I think you say in the book that we can't fix problems. We refuse to notice. Can you elaborate on what you mean by this and sort of how do, how do people start noticing the issues if we're not using the flag system yet or the word and that sort of stuff? What, what are some signs that people go? I think we've got a problem.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is very often, I mean, raise your hand, give me some kind of emoji on this. If at least once a meeting, something somebody says or does something that leaves you feeling kind of, eh, that wasn't quite right. And I think that it is our instinct to be silent in those moments. Uh, we we sort of default to silence. And if we can learn how to change the default to speaking up, even if we're not quite sure whether what happened was, was, was it bias? Was it prejudice? Was it bullying? Was it nothing? Like, what was it? But if we if, if we can learn to say something, it doesn't have to be the perfect thing. Then we'll often do better. Trey and for those yeah, and
2: for those who aren't familiar with the Just Word framework, very high level. When we talk about the root causes of workplace injustice, we name those things as bias, prejudice, and bullying. Simple definitions are bias is not meaning it, prejudice is meaning it. And bullying is just being mean. And so even just with that simple framing of it, what I love is that in the book, Kim gets very vulnerable and shares some incredible stories um, that really help you understand the framework. But what I think is so powerful about the framework is that everyone's stories bring this framework to life. And so that was that's what was so compelling to me, Paul, is that I'm reading the book and it's like, oh, wow, bullying being mean, I would have never named the experiences that I had outside of just basic training in the military. That is straight bullying. I get it. Um, But some of the experiences that I've had, I would have never named it as bullying. And so that means I couldn't address it as bullying. I didn't stand up for myself and I didn't, you know, engage with people in that way, but it very much was bullying. And so what I think happens is that when people can't name what's happening to them or what they're observing, then how do you solve for it? So that does not only does the framework give you the language to name it, but then tactical and practical solutions that you can put into place and that you can act upon um, regardless of what role you play. And so that is just what makes it so p- powerful. Because as we all know, we have frameworks in all of our areas and functions of expertise, right? There's engineering frameworks, frameworks. marketing product, what we don't have are more frameworks in the de i space that people can use when we're talking about how do we make our workplaces more inclusive, more equitable, so that we can get rid of these workplace injustices.
0: Yeah. I really like the, how the book was practical as well. Um, the I versus it statements and the dialogue role play, um, I thought was really good. You mentioned the cheat sheets at the end. They were also, you know, it, it's just good to have that refresher, isn't it, at the end of the book. Um, yeah, it makes it a very, very instantly useful book it's like you don't necessarily have to you know think long and hard about it you've you've got a really clear sort of roadmap as to sort of what to do that's right yep um the books not just about bias though, um, or prejudice bullying, you go into a darker side when um, power comes into issues, so discrimination, harassment, physical violations, obviously all clearly unacceptable and the human toll um, is crippling for people on the receiving end. Um, I'm putting my capitalist hat on now. What are the problems costing businesses sort of every year? should it should it be an ROI conversation?
1: Yes, I mean one of the one of the reasons I was excited to work with Trier is she had been at Goldman Sachs. She knows how to measure the impact. Now the problem, of course, with measuring the impact is is that it's difficult, and we're we're often looking for our keys under the spotlight. So, for example, I tell a story in the book about uh, a situation where I experienced not only bias, prejudice, and bullying, but also got groped in an elevator, was, was dramatically underpaid in a way that was discriminatory. So, and I was I was mad, I was really seriously angry and it took me about 30 years to admit this, but I can now admit that I could not do my best work in those conditions. I could not <laughs> do my best work when, my, when the chief of staff was grabbing my breast and the other guy was grinding himself up into me in the elevator, like this hurt my performance. And uh, and in my next job, where I was not treated that way, I created a business that was on a $100 million run rate by the time I left. So I would argue that one of the best investments the CEO of that first company could have made was to create the kind of dis- conditions where I could do my best work, because I couldn't. So it's very hard to measure... Uh, work that people are unable to do, creativity that is unable to be made manifest because people are being treated so badly. But I think McKinsey has taken a look at it and found that that uh, gender injustice in the workplace costs the economy trillions of dollars. But I think that we, we get, well, Trier, you want to say something? Go ahead, Kim. Think- no, go ahead. I think that we get we often um, we often get caught up in a debate over the the numbers and are we measuring it right? And I think very often people, unfortunately, uh, just use the difficulty of quantifying the pro- this the the impact that this problem has as a way to say it's not a problem. So so don't do that. That's my, that's a short, yeah, and short version of my advice there.
2: And again, Paul, let's go back to like how we get to discrimination, harassment, and physical violations. Going back to the framework, when you introduce power, right? When you have bias and prejudice and then power is introduced, you get discrimination. So for example, um, I was at an organization once where a hiring manager who has power, um, didn't extend an offer to a black woman because of how she wore her hair. She wore her hair naturally. And she didn't Uh, think that that woman would present professionally. And so did not give her that job. So because that uh, that hiring manager meant it, that was prejudice. They really believed and thought that a black woman in the professional setting wearing their natural hair is not professional, and they can't get the job done. Now you introduce power because they're a hiring manager and they get to make the hiring decision. that then turned into discrimination, right? So when you have bias and prejudice plus power, you get discrimination. When you have bullying plus power, you get harassment. and when you get physical via- when you get phys- when you get touch plus power, that equals a physical violation. And so ultimately, we know that we have power within organizations, right? what do we do with that? We have to have checks and balances, right? There's a lot that we talk about in the framework and Kim discusses in the book, but the big takeaway is that you have to have checks and balances to keep that power in check. I know Kim likes to say, all power is bad, all power is (laughs) bad, right? We have different (laughs) degrees of views on this. Um, But for me, you know, coming from the military where it's very clear hierarchy, I cannot tell you, you know, like, there was a lot of physical violations that occurred because the military does not have the correct checks and balances in place or a culture of consent to prevent these physical violations from occurring, right? Um, I recall in one of my deployments, there was a leader, uh, the the admiral who was in command um, was, um, you know, at... They liked to hold social events at their house uh, during, and this is a deployment where we had housing. And that's very normal. You know, the military has a very social culture. And we were dancing, and we started dancing together, and he was very inappropriate. in in like how he was dancing with me and groping with me uh, on on the dance floor. Now, not only did he do this in front of his command, but he did this in front of my subordinates and my command. In that situation, when everyone sees it and no one comes up and tells me that this is inappropriate, where do I go to communicate that, right? And so those are the type of things that organizations need to be thinking about is what are your checks and balances? And do you have a culture of consent with strong reporting systems so those things don't occur?
0: Yeah, um, I want to talk about the business. Um, so, set up Just Work LLC. Um, talk to me about the values and um, what you're setting out to achieve. Like, what's your year one goal? Great question, Paul Kim.
2: What's our what year one goal? Should we take that away for our next
1: <laughs> our yeah next team meeting? <laughs> so, so I w- I would I would say we don't have a goal like in terms of. Of revenue. The goal of setting the company up, as Trier said, people rarely change their behavior because they read a book. And so our goal is to work with organizations that are really committed to trying to change these behaviors. And so there are some organizations that are rolling out the bias interrupters we talked talked about there are other organizations that are interested in exploring how can they quantify their bias how can they take a look at, at who they're hiring their pay data their promotion data and how how can they cut it by gender by race and to, and understand where what, what it what I almost think of sometimes is it's it's very often it's an Unconscious discrimination. It's, it doesn't matter whether it's conscious or not. what matters is the impact. But, but very few organizations intend to discriminate, and yet they do all the time. And so, if you only when you only when you cut the numbers, when you're w- willing to really measure what matters to you, do you notice where the discrimination is happening? And then you have to investigate how to fix it. So those are some of the That's things right. we're working on. We're also starting to work on companies to help them write their code of conduct to prevent prejudice from uh, from from marring their team's ability to collaborate. Yeah,
2: I think one of the things also, Paul, is that if you are a leader, if you're in an organization, and you're thinking to yourself right now, well, we don't really have this problem. Um, you know, this doesn't really apply to us. Um, we do have. You're some, kidding yourself. Yeah, you're kidding yourself. It's either you haven't dug deep enough, you don't know where to look, you're not asking the right questions, or you need more education on how to name these injustices because they're absolutely occurring. Particularly if you have, you can have one or you can have um, a, a, you know, a larger percentage of any type of underrepresented group in your industry. So whether those are women, Hispanic Latinx professional, Asian professionals, black professionals, those that are from the queer community, right? folks uh, like there, you can cut it any type of way. Um, There are, there are injustices that they are dealing with. And this is not something that's like, oh yeah, maybe once a week, these are things that are happening in every meeting, every hour in your organizations. And so how do you equip your leaders and employees with the tools and the education that they need? So again, everyone can be upstanders and that we can all tackle this together.
0: Mm. Uh, let's let's talk about bosses. So bad bosses. We've all had them. Um, no one's born a bad boss. Um, how are they made? Is is made the right word?
1: I think so. I mean, there, there there are of course a few people who are just bad people, but I I would say I've encountered maybe one or two of those in the course of my whole career. Very often, I think what creates a bad boss is one lack of training. People don't teach management as often as they should. I think it's beginning to change. But my when my husband first moved to Silicon Valley, somebody told him, management is neither taught nor valued in Silicon Valley. And it was sort of a dire s- statement. And and we're beginning to see that change through, throughout different industries throughout the world. But I think People very rarely can articulate what managers really do. And then the second problem is the problem of power that Trier was talking about just a, mi- a minute ago. When people get a, even a little bit of power, it causes them to, to do bad things, whether, whether it is expl- sort of being biased, whether it is being more likely to bully uh, others. It is incredible how quickly bad behavior emerges when when there when power is involved, and so making sure that you're creating checks and balances in your organization so that uh, so that power doesn't corrupt, uh, you know, people who might otherwise be good people.
2: Yeah, Paul, I have a so this is my personal belief. I just want to throw it out there, but therapy let me tell you what creates bad bosses, people who don't do the work and go to therapy. Please don't bring your personal childhood traumas and issues into the workplace and put that on your team. I wish that I could have just given therapy to some of my previous bad bosses Um, because um, there's just things that it's just like, clearly you have some issues here and you should work that out. And that doesn't have anything to do with this team or this organization um the second one is is that and this is a very military perspective of like the training and the development that i had that i was fortunate to have in at from the air force academy and then also in the military but Being manager and leader are not synonyms. And if you think that they are, please go read upon that because they're very, very different. And so understanding what makes you a strong manager, which is important, but I think more important is you need to be a capable and strong leader. And then the other concept is followership. We don't talk about, apparently they don't talk about followership outside of the military, which is just so interesting to me. But one of the reasons why I think I was actually a more capable and better leader in the military is because the military teaches everyone, not only how to lead, but teaches everyone how to follow. Even the most senior person in the military is a follower. And so when you teach people how to lead and follow, amazing, amazing things can happen. There's this um, symbiotic like accountability that happens because I know what it looks like for you to follow. You know what it looks like for me to leave, and vice versa. And it doesn't, and like I tell people all the time, Trier, what do you do day to day? Whatever Camille tells me to do. Camille's the chief of staff on our team. Uh, my day, I do what Camille tells me to do, right? I follow Camille, um, even though I'm the CEO of the organization. Um, so, you know, I think that people just learning and doing the work of like, how can you be a strong manager? Yes, a strong leader, talking about followership, and then do the work so that you don't bring your traumas into your your um, direct reports lives.
0: It's so, it's so interesting you talk about um, following because it's on the platform that we are, we have followings right and that's thing and they're a good thing you meant to have like big numbers and people that do things for you and that sort of stuff but being a follower at work is often seen as a negative or a bad thing and you should be leading and it's good to lead and that sort of stuff which i think is obviously machismo and that sort of stuff but Mm
2: -hmm. um yeah it's one of my favorite quotes as general platen is lead me follow me or get out of the way
0: how do bosses trade on that on people to say, like, it's it, it, is it that we just come up with another word for follow? Because really, it, it's it is following, and you know, again, we can't just keep coming up with new words for different things, we have to almost. Uh, except that some words are, do you know what that that's what it means? And it's okay to follow, you know? That. Yeah,
2: it's absolutely okay to follow. And there's power in followership. There's another concept called first follower, right? First followers when you're in a meeting um, and the person who has that idea, everyone thinks that they need to be the, the person that has the great idea. No, it is also equally as powerful to be the first follower, the first person that can say, Kim, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Because we need to have that influence so that we can actually implement, and execute that idea. And so, yeah, it's in Paul. I didn't, I don't, I don't have the perspective that following is like a bad thing. I encourage people, like, if you are the best person to lead this effort or lead this initiative, let us know what to do and I will follow you. It doesn't matter where I sit in the organization, it doesn't matter how junior or senior you are. Um, I actually think the same thing about mentorship. I have people that are more junior than me, younger than me that I see as mentors. To me, a mentor is just giving advice and guidance. I have plenty of people that are <laughs> younger than me. By the way, if anyone asks, I'm 25. Anyway, younger than me and they have great experiences and they've learned a lot and they're experts in their fields. Um, and so like, let's let's have a paradigm shift on that, right? Um, following, there's, there's strength in being a follower the same way that there's strength in being a leader. And we have to have both skills to be successful no matter the level you're at
0: let's talk about that in a second I've got I w- definitely want to come on to things uh, like basecamp and that um, you've had a lot of experience in a lot of different types of industries um, I get to talk to a lot of younger execs and leaders about managing up that's that seems to be a big key at the moment people managing up and not mm-hmm. up. um I think it's also about setting expectations about, you know, what the realities of what happens when they talk to power is often Um, an issue that could be said to be permeating, uh, permeating even a few uh, avenues of life right now for a lot of people. How do we get more comfortable holding power to account if we're, say, not the senior person?
2: Yeah, so managing up is definitely a skill and a muscle that we have to do. Um, and I think it's really leaning into the discomfort of it or understanding. I had a conversation with someone this morning, um, that I was telling them to manage up, tell their CEO what to do. And they were like, well, there's the, I don't tell them what to do. Actually, that's exactly what you're there to do. And I was like, well, well, the worst thing that she can say is no. And then she'll tell you what she's going to do. And then you need to help her iterate on that to be successful. Right. Um, but understand that we're both here to help each other and if your job is to make the person above you look good. But then let me tell you a secret, the person above you, they're thinking the same thing that if they're a strong leader, they're thinking I'm here to make the people below me and my team look good. So if we both have that, if we're both coming from that place, right, we're both gonna be taken care of and we both can do that and to lean into that. I think that, you know, junior people can need to lean, lean into that discomfort, but senior folks, if you have people that are doing this, give them the space relieve your power right give your power, give your power away let someone take that lead um, follow someone that's more junior and and set that tone within your organization i see a couple of people in the in this twitter space that have been on my teams and you know they can tell you firsthand I'll be in meetings with senior people and people will ask me a question and I'll say, I don't know what's going on. And you're asking the wrong person because I'm not the lead on this initiative. I am not the lead on this project. I'm here to support them. And if you have questions, you need to direct your questions to so the person who has the answer. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh my I God, think I love- that's I think that's so well said Trier. I think that the, the, the issue, the way to succeed at work, whether you're the boss or the employee is to have to build good relationships. And there's nothing more damaging to a human relationship than a power imbalance. So if you feel like you don't have power, pick some up. And you feel like you have power, put it down. I think the, the more we can learn to be very conscious about doing that, the more successful we'll all be.
0: Definitely, definitely. All right, it's the big one. How could we talk about bad bosses uh, without talking about the base camp through and the backtracking? Uh, recently happened. Basecamp hit the news ah. recently for some interesting choices. <laughs> um they talked about no uh, no more societal political discussions in the company base camp account, no more paternal benefits, no more committees, no lingering on past decisions, no more three sixty reviews. I still can't believe that was written down. Um <laughs> no forgetting what Basecamp is and does. Which you know, that's fine. I can take that last one and that sort of thing. Since then they've lost about a third of their employees. 33% of their employees no longer worse for a base camp. That's 33% of your employees are now detractors in a company. The mic's yours, ladies. What do you think about their choices? <laughs>
1: okay, they make some really, really bad, really bad choices. I mean, again, this is a perfect example of of the fact that it's not it's not the it's not this the injustice that is the distraction. I mean, it is the injustice that's the distraction. It's not the conversation about the injustice that is the distraction. And, and when you try to shut down conversation, that's going to be more distracting than anything and cost you, you know, a third of your employees. So I think, though, to be in some senses, what they did was they stumbled into a code of conduct. They said, we're not going to talk about it but they didn't they didn't they didn't work with their employees to create the code of conduct that everybody could sign up for and they didn't stop and think about what they were saying and it just it does not work silencing people does not solve problems especially when you say we're going to be silent about problems issues of social injustice come into the workplace with Employees, and so if you're going to hire human beings, you've got to wrestle with these issues, and you got to figure out how to wrestle with these with these issues. Why
2: I agree with everything with Kim said. While I think that this is a, I think it was a a, a lack of leadership, and um, you know, one of the things that we also say in the military is that. If someone said, Trier, you will always be a leader because you are an officer, but the adjective you put before that is your choice. Are you going to be a strong leader, a good leader? And so this is an example. This was bad leaders. They are bad leaders. But here's the thing, Paul. I appreciate Basecamp doing it, and I wish more organizations would. And you know why? Because for the employees that have left, they know where that organization stands, they know where those leaders stand, and they made a choice not to be a part of it. I want more organizations to draw the line in the sand. I want to know where you stand so that we can make the choice as an employee if we choose to work there, or we can make a choice if we choose for you to be a client. I could tell you right now, Basecamp would never work. We'll never work with Basecamp. So I just think that like, I wanna be in spaces where I know where you stand, we know who we're working with. And I want employees to go into organizations eyes wide open, right? That's the only positive that has come from that, that people now have that understanding. So if people continue to choose to make, to draw that line in the sand and take that, you know, stance, then you're going to have employees that don't agree with it. That's fine. Um, And, or you can choose to be on the other side. But what is important is that I think it's important for you to manage expectations and give your employees deserve to know. Where you stand. And it doesn't mean a political stance, right? You could just say, I've worked at companies where we said, look, we will never make political, we're not here to make political statements, but we support Black Lives Matter because we think that is a social, a human rights issue, not a political issue. So oh.
0: I, I I absolutely agree. i what I really wanted to see was a headline of like so and so big company no longer working with Basecamp. And I haven't seen that. And I, I, I'm interested to see if that does come because I think how you run a business and how you treat your employees should determine whether I use your product. You know, that that is just a personal thing, but I want a company. To do the Patagonia thing are like, we're not doing this anymore, Black Friday, we don't do that, you know, and that's sort the of thing. I think it's a really interesting uh, headline that we haven't seen yet, and I'm wondering if that is even happening, if people are even thinking like that. I, I hope we are moving to a future where we are, on that sort of thing. thing. Um, yeah. TikTok's also under fire today, actually. Um, tech devs are turning down roles because they're perceived to have, or have, we can't determine, a 996 culture, which is born in China. It's a requirement that employees work 9 till 9pm, 9 six days a week. Um, obviously, not a good system, also Something in the west that we would consider not a good system um how what, what would if tiktok was a client what would be your advice
1: so say more i am not i'm gonna i'm gonna confess my ignorance does does tiktok have a policy of forcing people to work from nine to nine six days a week
0: this is the uh, official line that we cannot find at the moment. So I don't think they would admit to having that policy. Uh, but it
1: is a policy, yeah. I mean, and it's frankly uh, not only. I mean, I've worked in some places where I was expected to work those kinds of hours. So, uh, so I. So here's what I think about uh, about what you want at, for both practical and moral reasons. You want as a, a leader to create an environment in which people can work in the way that is most productive for them. And most people cannot work productively, you know, from nine to nine, six days a week, but there are people, you also don't, I I was once working with a team that did work that way. And I thought there was, I thought it was my job as their advisor to make them stop working that way. I thought it was unhealthy. And, 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 a cross functional colleague of theirs i was talking to them about how awful i thought this was and she said to me well kim they work that way because they like it and i realized oh my gosh some people some people do work well when they some people can work effectively and they like working 80 90 hours a week i don't but i don't want to tell other people, how they should work. The key thing on it. There was one person who worked for me, one of the most productive people who ever worked with me. Needed to take a two-month bender once a year, and needless to say, this company's um, this company's empl- employment that like there was not that there was not a structure that accommodated this. And one of the most important things I did as his boss was help him figure out a way. To, to take those two, I, I shouldn't call it a bender. He, he, it was an artistic endeavor. There was some drinking involved, but there was also <laughs> a lot of photography. Um, but he needed this time to to sort of regenerate his creative energies for work. and uh, And so I realized that it was my job as his boss to figure out a way to make this work. And could I offer two months to every employee? No, I could not. But the, the goal is to accommodate different kinds of working styles because different things work for different people.
2: That's right. That's 100% right.
0: Perfect. All right. I've, I've had too much fun with this interview, so I've, I'm, I'm running out of time. So I'm going to have to uh, run to Desert Island Tweet at the moment. Um, okay, it's time for Desert Island Tweets, the part of the mouthwash where we pick a tweet or two that's changed the guest mind or way of thinking in some way. Um, Please turn your attention to the nest, and while I fill for time, because I've forgotten to get the notes up, I will um, find the link to get you to that nest. Um, But while we're doing that, um, Tria, which platform or technology is making us bad bosses or people the most?
2: Which technology or platform is making us bad bosses the
1: most? Yeah. I don't think there's a platform or a technology that makes us, it's like, the question is, do you manage the technology or does the technology manage you? But I'm gonna flip that around Paul and say, what technology do I think is making
2: stronger leaders? And I would say Twitter. And I'm not just saying that because I used to work there and I still got a little bit of equity. I'm not saying it because of that. I actually really believe that. (laughs) I think that every platform has its strength. Um, I think LinkedIn is dying and dead. And one of the tweets, there it is, you put it up for me, Paul, many founders aren't hiring from Harvard, they're hiring from Twitter, I think that people are hiring from Twitter, I think that leaders are being challenged on Twitter, I think that Twitter is where conversations are happening, people are going to have more conversations with spaces, and I think that um, there is a lot to learn on Twitter both personally and professionally. And I think that Twitter is actually empowering leaders and just strengthening us all as professionals because it's just such great gems and conversations and things for us to learn on this platform.
1: Again, as long as you are managing Twitter and Twitter is not managing as you. As long as you,
0: I, that is correct, that <laughs> is correct.
1: Been, there have been times when I, uh, when I had to take Twitter off my phone and limit myself to particular moments during the day So that I went to Twitter, Twitter didn't come to me.
2: Yes, this is also coming from the person where I don't tweet. You can go look at my handle. Like, I very, very rarely tweet. (laughs) I consume, um, but I don't tweet a lot, but my DMs are lit. (laughs) I love
0: that. Uh, I think, uh, Kim, uh, your one's up at the moment. Tell us why you picked this.
1: So I, whenever I want good advice, I turn to to Mecca. And uh, he really gave such good advice to people who are underrepresented for getting promoted. And he came up with this idea of the difficulty anchor. And I write about this in Just Work. But I think that, that the advice that he gives to folks for succeeding, and he's, he really is committed to changing systemic injustice, but also to giving pr- practical advice to people for here's the way the world is. I want you to succeed. Here's, here's how you can succeed in the world as it is while at the same time trying to change the world. So I really he's, uh, his, his tweets are, are I go all the time to, to look for wisdom there.
0: Yeah he's doing some, he's doing some great stuff at Google. Um, okay, Kim Triat. I can't thank you enough for pushing the agenda on workplace, fairness, bias, prejudice and everything. Just Work's an amazing book, Kim. Um, I won't lie. As I said before, it was an uncomfortable book to read at times, but I think it's super important for everyone, male, female, however you identify. I think everyone's got something to learn from it. It's practicalness, as I mentioned, is one of the best I've seen in a book, if that makes sense. It's very easy to, 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 to make changes. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to really see where your company uh, is going to change the hearts, minds and also realities for millions out there. I think you have that potential um, with what you're doing with Just Work. Um, any final advice for listeners for the next 24 months?
1: Don't give in to the default to silence. When you get that queasy feeling in a meeting that something's not right, Say something, even if it's not exactly the right thing and just be gentle, (laughs) cut yourself some slack. You don't have to say the perfect thing, but say something, even if it's not the ideal thing. Even if later you wish you had said something different, at least you have interrupted what it was that was happening
2: let's not default to silence that's what we want we want to end the default to silence and get comfortable with the discomfort right get comfortable being uncomfortable and um let's all be great upstanders
0: thanks for listening Find out more about Mouthwash and the next season over at mouthwashshow.com. Mouthwash is recorded live on Twitter spaces before becoming the podcast you've been listening to. Thanks to Ecology for planting a tree for every listener and Shell for sponsoring the show. Let me know if you're enjoying Mouthwash so far by leaving us a rating and a review. Remember to subscribe to Mouthwash wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes featuring activists, AI experts, Silicon Valley royalty, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists, and a whole lot more besides. See you next time, and remember, always start or end your day with a little mouthwash.